you have a copy of the Bible, which I hope you would, I always want to encourage you to bring that with you each and every Sunday. Um, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 17 this morning. We come to this amazing text of Scripture that uh, is given to us uh, only in John's Gospel. This is uh, this unique glimpse into Christ's personal uh, prayer life nestled between his last conversations with his disciples and what would be his betrayal and arrest and then his um, suffering and his death on the cross. John 17, I've been looking forward to preaching through this chapter of Scripture over the course of two weeks because it's just too much to cover in one sermon. Actually, John 17 is probably a a whole sermon series in and of itself. Uh, But a lot of us are familiar with the likes of John or Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, if you would go there, which you don't have to, but if you went there, you would find what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's called the Lord's Prayer because Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, and the Lord teaches them how to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer, but in light of John 17, I'm more apt to call this the Lord's Prayer and call what we see in Matthew 6 the Disciples' Prayer. Because here, this whole entire chapter is the Lord pouring His heart out before His Heavenly Father to the point where just in reading it and studying it and marinating on it over the past couple weeks, and in particular this week, I was overwhelmed more than probably any other text of Scripture in a long time with the fact that I don't feel adequate to preach this. This is something that is a conversation going on between the Son and the Father. You almost feel like you're you're getting a glimpse into a very Trinitarian moment here. Uh, it's it's so deep, it's so rich, it's so beautiful, it's so poignant and telling and um, encouraging and uplifting. It, it, there's just so much here. Jesus prays for three people in this text of John 17. He prays for himself. He prays for his apostles, the apostles. And then he prays for every believer who would come to believe as a result of their testimony, which is us in this room. Three very distinct groups of people that he prays for. Today, the text that we're going to read, the first eight verses of this prayer, I I wasn't sure I was going to break this up into two parts, but it became clear to me that I need to, uh, I can't speed over the part where Jesus prays for himself. It seems almost kind of ridiculous, redundant, that Jesus would come to the Father and that he would pray for himself. But in the study of this, we learn a lot about him, his ministry, his mission. We learn a lot about the cross. And uh, so... I decided that we would spend the first week just simply covering the first eight verses, primarily Jesus praying for himself. Next week, we'll look at Jesus' prayer for his apostles and for the rest of the disciples 
yet to come. So let's read the text together. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. If you could sum up Jesus' one prayer request to the Father about Himself here in these first eight verses, it would be this. Jesus prays that He might be glorified. He prays for His own glory. Now, it takes a Pretty confident person to come before the Heavenly Father and say, now's the time, glorify me. Nobody here has the right to pray that prayer. But because of who Christ is, He has every right to pray that prayer. To come to the Father and say, now's the time. I've I've done this work, now's the time, glorify me. And there's a lot we can learn in these verses about who Christ is and what that means for us. So as we look at this glorification that Jesus is praying about, we understand just a few things about what that glory looks like. When Jesus prays that He might be glorified, the first thing that He's praying about is that the glory that would occur at the cross. The glory of the cross. He's praying to the Father. He's saying, the hour has come. The hour of what? The hour that the mission is finally going to be fulfilled. The hour has come. The hour of what? The hour of His death. The hour of atonement has finally come. We don't think of the cross oftentimes as a glorious place. And yet it is. The cross is the most glorious place. The cross is the most beautiful place. Amazing. Why? Because it was a place of torture, because it was a place of uh, humility, because it was a place of um, anguish and suffering. No, the cross is a glorious place because that's where our Savior did the most amazing and beautiful work ever done in all of human creation. Here's why the cross is glorious. And you can write these down if you want. They're not in your note sheet. But this is this is why the cross is a glorious place. This is why Jesus is glorified in the cross. First of all, because it's where Jesus secures our eternal righteousness for us through His atonement. He comes to the cross. This is, a, this is such a biblical truth you need to have hammered home in your heart this morning. 
Christ going to the cross was Him securing for us eternal righteousness that we didn't deserve. He modeled on the cross His perfection and He said His authority over all flesh. Let me read it to you again. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. All flesh. Flesh for flesh. The flesh of you and I paid for by the flesh of a perfect Savior. That's how our eternal righteousness was secured. The perfect flesh paying for our sinful flesh. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21 this way, he said, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he took the sin of our being, our inherent sin, the sin of our flesh, and He placed it upon the perfect flesh of the, His own Son. And in that beautiful moment on the cross, He became sin and He took our sin away. So that we might receive not a righteousness that we deserve, not a righteousness that we earned. God simply made a transaction at that point. The Son received our sin. We received the righteousness of the Son. That, that, that's the core of what it means to be a Christian. Is the faith and belief in this beautiful, glorious moment. When, when the Son hung there on the cross and He became sin, that passion was glorious. The cross was glorious because it was Jesus securing the affections of man at that moment. It, it's the cross where men and women come and they lay down their lives in order to pick up their own cross and follow Him. It's the cross where you and I come and we take all the things that afflict us, all the sin that ensnares us, all the stuff that drags us down and steals our hope and joy, and it's the beauty of the cross and the work that Christ did there, right? It's that place where we can come and we can take all of our, our life and we can lay it down at the cross, at His feet, and we can know that what Jesus did there was enough to take all those things from us and give us something perfect and beautiful. That's what the cross is. And, and He has literally millions of people through the course of the past two millennia, He has um, secured the affections of people at the cross. When a person, however you came to Christ, I mean, maybe it was in the front seat of a car or a pickup truck praying with somebody who introduced you to the idea of salvation through Christ. Maybe it was like me. Maybe it was at the foot of your bed when you, you prayed and, 
and you realized that you needed Jesus as your Savior. Or maybe it was in a church environment. You know, you heard somebody speak from a pulpit or at a revival meeting or a guest missionary came in and they were sharing a testimony and, and you heard the gospel and you, you committed your life at that point and maybe you even walked an aisle to tell somebody about the decision you made. That was the moment where Christ secured your affections. And when He secured your affections, He not only became your Savior, but He became your Lord. He became the man who is large and in charge of your life. And you willfully gave your life to Him from now and for all of eternity. It's beautiful because men and women for millennia have been laying their lives down at the cross. Now, here's another reason the cross is glorious. Because the cross forever, for us as Christians, will be our symbol of victory, will it not? The cross is where Jesus defeated Satan. The cross is where evil was defeated for all time. Wickedness was conquered in that moment. Because of our Lord, Satan no longer has power over death. Satan no longer has power over the souls of mankind only because of the work of the cross. He, Satan battles on. He still tries to wage war for the affections of our flesh. He still tries to deceive us and trip us up. And he still tries to manipulate the world. But ultimately, the battle is done. The victory has been secured. He was defeated at the cross. That's what makes it such a glorious and beautiful place. It's, it's our, the cross is our constant reminder every single day when, when, when you are whispered to in deceit by the wicked one and he says to you, you're not good enough. When Satan comes and he, he whispers in your ear and says, see, I told you, you're a failure. Or he says, see, you, you fell again. You might as well not even bother getting up. And he tries to convince us of these things. Where do we run? Where do we run, church? We run to the cross. Because the cross says, no matter what Satan tries to tell you, the beauty of the cross and the message of the cross is that it is finished. There's nothing you could secure if you thought in your life that you could run a perfect race and secure your own salvation, you'd be deceiving yourself. The whole reason Jesus died on the cross was because He understood that in our flesh there is no perfection, there is no race that we can run perfectly, that we will continue to stumble and fall and fail and hurt others. And the cross tells us in a very beautiful and poignant way, forget what He's telling you. I'm enough. I want. It's enough. In 1 John 3.8, the Apostle John later wrote, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that he did. 
And then we read in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Maybe you know some people that are living in that slavery. They're living with the the fear that Satan has control or power over their life. That death dictates the results of their life. And as Christians, we look at the cross every single day and we say, no, there is no hold that he has, Satan has, over me anymore. He can't even dangle death over my head anymore because of the beautiful picture that is the cross of Jesus Christ. At that moment, glory reigned. And as Jesus prays about His own glory and the glory of the cross, we also learn that on the cross, Jesus demonstrates perfect love, obedience, sacrifice, and denial. You want to know how to live your life as a Christian? Look to the cross. You want to know what it means to lay your life down for Christ? Look to the cross. In Hebrews 5, the writer put it this way. In verses 7 and 8, he said, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The perfect Son came out of heaven, put on flesh, and learned obedience to the point of dying on the cross in order to secure our salvation. In that obedience, we have a model of what it looks like to be sacrificial, humble, denying of ourselves. The glorious picture of the cross as Christ was glorified on the cross. Think about this in your own life. How are you glorified in Christ? By laying your life down and holding nothing back, sacrificing everything, loving well, without limits. That's what it means to glory in Christ. That's what it means to glory in our Heavenly Father. The the cross shows us that through the model of Christ. That's totally opposite, by the way, of what the world preaches and teaches to us, is it not? You want to glorify yourself in the world? What do you do? Go to the front of the line. Gain a title. Make a name for yourself. That's what the world tells us. The cross says just the opposite. You want to glorify yourself? Rid yourself of self. Lay yourself down. Give everything that's required. Love without limits. That's what the cross teaches us. That's the beautiful story of glorification that we learn through the cross. And lastly, the cross, we see this. Jesus said, let me read it one more time. Verse 3, 
in John 17, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The cross screams at us that the work of Christ on the cross was meant to glorify the Father. The evil done against Him, the evil done against the Heavenly Father, the evil done against the eternal God was punished at the cross. I read one commentator this week, and I didn't like quite the wording of it, but I think I kind of got the gist at what he was getting at. Um, he said something basically along, along the lines of that the cross is where God redeemed his honor from the wickedness of the world. And I think what he was getting at with that was that for so long it began to look like there was no hope and that God had lost control and that the world was without authority, heavenly authority, and that God had given up or had forgotten. You know, 400 years during the intertestamental period, God was silent. There was no prophet, there was no voice until John the Baptist. And the cross is where it became clear that God had not lost, that God had not been defeated, that God our Father had not been besmirched, but that the cross is where He affirmed the fact that, no, 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 I've got this. I am God. The depth of God's love is demonstrated through Christ, bringing glory to Himself. Romans 5.8 tells us this, and John 3.16, but Romans 5.8, Paul wrote, but God shows His love for us. There it is. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the story of the cross. Love is what brings the Father glory. So, Jesus prays for His glory. He says, the hour has come. The hour of what? The hour of the cross. Now I'm going to be glorified and the glory will be evident on the cross. There's the glory of the cross. But we also know that there's the glory of, of redemption. The glory of redemption. You see... Without Christ, there would be no eternal life for men. There would be no eternal life because there would no be redeeming from sin. There would not be an adequate payment for sin. Let me read verses 2 and 3 one more time here. It seems like we're kind of beating this over and over again, but, but it's worthwhile Jesus' words to His Father here, He says, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. Here He's about to define for us all what eternal life is. This is eternal life. 
that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. This is eternal life. That you know Jesus, whom God sent, and in turn you know the Father. This is where the strong Christian doctrine of having a relationship with the living God is bolstered. We play it down. Like we make, uh, <clears throat> in uh, evangelical circles, you know, we talk, we, we focus on the, the convert aspect, you know, somebody who recognizes that they're a sinner and they uh, recognize their need for an atoning sacrifice. So they, you know, but when we talk about, you know, when you ask somebody, say, do, do, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? This isn't a knowing as in uh, head knowledge. This is a relational component. So Jesus is saying, this is eternal life, that you know the Son and in turn, you know the Father. That's redemption. Matthew 7. Matthew says this in verses 21 to 23. Now this is a, this is a really scary component because it kind of defeats the whole idea of fire insurance. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, what does he say? I never knew you. He doesn't say you didn't do those things. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's, there's a significant component to salvation. There's a significant component to redemption and eternal life that looks like an intimate relationship with the Son. So as we wrestle with, you know, does, does a person know Christ or do they not know Christ? Well, I think one of the things that needs to be wrestled with is this idea of, well, what, d d does it look like they have a relationship with that person? Because there are a lot of people that come across my path, and I know them, but I don't know them. I know them as an acquaintance, but I don't have a relationship with them. This isn't a, an acquaintance. This isn't a familiarity in a cursory sort of sense. This is a, this is a do you have a deep relational knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And in turn, because of that, you then know the Father. Knowing Christ is Paul's heart cry in Philippians 3. Paul said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Twice in that text he says that I may know him. Know him. And what does it mean to know him? Well, he qualifies that a little bit. To know him. I mean to know him, know him. To know the power of his resurrection. To know his sufferings. <clears throat> Get a Christian to sign up for that one nowadays in this um, American culture that we live in. When a person comes and say, yeah, I want the insurance. You know, I want to know that I'm going to heaven. Okay, well, do you want to know Christ? What does that entail? Well, it means you know laying your life down for Him. It means knowing Him and identifying in His sufferings, identifying in um, His His works, identifying in whatever He asks of you. Are you prepared to go there? He says, I want to be found in Him. I want to know Christ to a level where my identity is gone and the only identity that's left in me is that of Christ. Hmm. Do we know Him like that? Do we even want to know Him like that? Because that's the beauty of the cross. It's tied together redemption and eternal life. Every time a person commits their life to knowing Christ, He's glorified as is the Father who sent Him. Now let me go on to the third component here of this glory. Jesus prays for Himself. He, we see that this glory looks like the glory of the cross. This glory looks like the glory of redemption. But this glory also looks like the glory of rightful position. And this is where Jesus perhaps prays His most bold statement. He says this in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence, that the glory I had with you before the world existed. Um, and then we'll read a little bit later next week. He, he expounds on this. <coughs> but in verse 5, there's this amazing moment of clarity from Jesus to us. It's an understanding. It's an outspoken appreciation on His part regarding His rightful place. He is, he is praying out loud in front of His disciples to His Heavenly Father, and He's saying this, I'm ready. I've humbled myself. The hour has come. I'm ready to give of my flesh and die. And I'm also ready to pick back up again with the rightful position and glory and everything that goes along with that that I had before I took on this mission. Before I came into this world, I, Jesus Christ, had all glory equal with the Father. And I'm ready for it again. You, you can't say that unless you're God. You can't. And anybody who teaches us that Jesus was something less than the Father, that Jesus was something created by the Father, that Jesus was some sort of teacher or prophet or miracle worker. He was just a good teacher. Anybody who pushes those things 
is missing the bigger picture of glory. Christ left perfect, eternal glory that was only reserved for Him to come into earth, humble Himself, die on a cross, and as He's getting ready to go to the cross, His mind begins to turn back to what His rightful position is. And we look upon the cross and we see a man who's just broken and torn apart literally, emotionally, physically, torn apart on our behalf. Broken beyond comprehension. He hangs there. They spit on Him. They mock Him. And in His heart, Jesus knows what His glory looks like. I don't know if this was a pep talk on His part, but it must have been encouraging to Him at this moment to share this time with the Father to say, I'm I'm ready to come back. I'm ready for it. There's so much even that we could say about what this glory looks like. But we know this, simply by this statement, we know that the Son is eternal with the Father. If you ever thought that Jesus was a created being, this statement nixes that bad theology. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was eternal with the Father. How do I know that? He said, give me the glory that I had before the world began. Ancient of days, the glory I shared with you that I've always had, I want it back. I'm ready to take it back. And because of that, we know that He's equal with God, the Father, existing as one. Look at Philippians 2, verses 5-11. to Paul kind of explains this a little bit. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Okay, so we've covered that so far, right? Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is. I mean, like, that text right there is a, a nice summation of everything that we're talking about this morning in this these eight verses of this prayer. Paul is saying, Jesus left heaven, humbled himself, obedience, died on the cross, brought glory to the Father. The Father gave him a name that is rightfully his, that is exalted above all heaven and all earth. The name that's rightfully his, he goes back to this, and at this, the Father is then in turn glorified again. This Two parts of the Trinity working perfectly together to bring about redemption and glorify Christ. Jesus emptied Himself of His God equality. He emptied Himself. In emptying Himself, He humbled Himself of His glory. He gave it up. And then God exalted Him with a name that means every knee in heaven and on earth and in death would bow to it. You see that? Every name in heaven, every name on earth, and every knee in death, every knee, every knee, every knee, 
Every person, every name will bow to Christ. No one will escape bowing before Jesus Christ. Those who are going to eternal death, those who are receiving eternal life, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. And in this, God the Father is glorified. Look at this amazing verse in Hebrews 1. Hebrews is great in helping us understand this whole idea. One of my favorite verses in in the book of Hebrews, verses 3 and 4. It says, He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Holy cow. He's saying that this is kind of like, the best way I can equate this analogy-wise, you look in the sky and you see the sun, right? What's coming off of that? Nothing's really coming off of it. It's just, its existence is extended in that which is warming your skin this afternoon. That's Jesus Christ. He and the Father are one, and yet Jesus is the radiance of that. Jesus is what has entered into our lives to warm our skin, to redeem our flesh. The exact representation of His being, His nature. And that same representation, that same existence is what is upholding the world through His Word. That the world that Jesus was dying for on the cross that Friday was also being sustained by who He is. Dumbfounding. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you know what um, kings and queens would do when they executed judgment or they made rulings? Do you know what they did? They would go and they would sit on their throne. They would go into a room and they would sit on a throne and they would render judgment in their authority and power at that time. Christ comes into the world, dies on the cross, is resurrected again, He sends into heaven, and according to the book of Hebrews, the next thing Christ does is He assumes His role again, the glory that He prayed for with the Father in John 17. And it says when He gets to heaven, He assumes His role again, and what does He do? He sits down next to the Father in the full majesty that is His. Christ assumed His role as authority, judge, and full king, majesty, ruler over heaven and earth once again. I was talking with Mindy this week as I was preparing this sermon. I was getting excited about certain things. And it says in this verse... After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So majesty is a reference to the heavenly Father. Majesty is this word that's only used here in the New Testament. One time, it's the word megalusunes. It's Jesus returning to the divine glory reserved only for God. 
Now you may say, what, what does this look like? And, and what's my part in it? What's the deal here? What, how does the fact that Jesus is sitting down in majesty on high, that Jesus is praying for and he's going to assume or has assumed the glory that was reserved only for him that he had for all of eternity, how does this affect me this morning? It's great you're painting this wonderful image of the glorification of Christ and that he prayed for this, but pastor, what does this have to do with my life? How does this significantly impact me as I go about my week this week? Let me read to you Revelation 5. We get to the end of the Bible. We get this glimpse into heaven through John on the island of Patmos when the revelation was given to him. And in John 5, beginning in verse 11, this is what he witnesses. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. We see what eternity looks like for us and for all living creatures here. We see that every angelic creature and every elder, who are the elders? Twelve apostles, twelve heads of the tribes of Israel, every one of those elders will fall down and sing praise and worship for all eternity before who? The Lamb. This is the glory that Jesus will be receiving for all of eternity. It's coming from you and I. So we will do it. Our eternity exists in worshiping and glorifying Jesus Christ. That's why if, you're, if your lifestyle as a Christian dictates something other than worship, if your lifestyle dictates a, a hesitancy towards corporate worship, if your lifestyle dictates uh, a priority of worship in your life that's somewhere you know, after other things that seem more significant, may this be a gut check to you. Because you are saved for worship. Your eternity and my eternity, eternal life that Jesus secured for you and we proclaim as Christians we are so thankful for, is going to look like worship every day, all the time, forever and ever, falling on our faces before Christ, praising Him. Anybody who says, well, you know, that, that song singing and that hand raising, that uh, corporate thing coming together on Sundays, you know, that's just not for me, or I don't need to do that. You're not going to like heaven very much. Because if you think a, a crowd of 80 to 100 people and singing praises to God is um, humiliating or uh, boring, wait till you get to heaven and it's like millions upon millions of people falling on their faces worshiping Christ. It's going to be one of our jobs. 
and we're never going to think of it as a job. It's just going to be who we are. It's our identity. We are worshipers. That's what we do. This, this image of Christ and His glory that He's assuming for eternity, it's also a continual reminder in our life here on earth of what He left in order to redeem us. When we get this glimpse into heaven and we see what His glory, what His majesty looked like, consider the significance of Christmas. It was at that moment that Christ stepped out of heaven and He, and he in a very amazing, mysterious, divine sort of way, he entered the womb of a virgin woman and, and, and He was born and laid in a feeding trough, cold. He was raised as a boy, skinned his knee. He was probably made fun of by the neighborhood kids. Poked and prodded, snotty noses, colds, illnesses, all those things. He was humiliated and suffered emotionally growing up. All those things that we know so well on earth. Christ left that to enter into our world. Why? so that we could be saved. And he was so happy to do it. I mean, you read this prayer and he's like, the ones you've given me, I've secured them. They're ours now. I love that. And lastly, let me just, let me just kind of wrap us into this idea of his glory because I want you to remember that his eternal glory we're going to be experiencing that too. It will be our glory as well. We're His heirs now. His children. He's pleased to share in this glory with us. And it should be encouraging to us every day. We think, oh, Father, please re- restore to me the glory that I had before all this mess. Before this work that You gave me to do. I've secured the ones You've given me, they're they're ours now. And I'm coming back to you. And think about it. We're coming with Him. This amazing, beautiful place, Christ on a throne, the constant worship, the everything that we read in the book of Revelation is promised to us as well. We get to participate in that. The Puritan writer John Owen, um, he put it this way, just as a, a to kind of encourage people. He said this, and maybe you're you're just discouraged this morning. Maybe this this will bring you a word of encouragement. He said, "Rest therefore in hope, for God, in His appointed season, when He shall have a desire to the work of His hands, will call to you, and you shall answer Him out of the dust. Then shall He, by an act of big Almighty power, I love that, by an act of big Almighty power." not only restore you to your pristine glory as at the first creation when you were the pure workmanship of His hands, but enrich and adorn you with the inconceivable privileges and advantages. Be not then afraid. Away with all reluctance. Go into the dust. Rest in hope. And then he quotes Daniel 12.13. He says, For you shall stand in your lot at the end of the days. What a great promise. I love that. And then in big almighty glory, 
He'll restore to you pristine glory, or almighty power. He'll restore to you pristine glory. And at the end, he says, and be not then afraid. Away with all reluctance. Go into the dust. Rest in hope. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the glory of redemption. That's the glory of Christ's rightful position. We are the beneficiaries of all that. Next week, we'll dig into uh, how He prays specifically for you and I in this journey that is our life with Christ. And it's good stuff, really encouraging things. But let me just close with this idea. Maybe you're here this morning and you want hope. You want hope. Maybe you're a believer. You've been tr- you've trusted in Christ for a long time, but you're thinking to yourself, you know, I just I feel like I'm down in the dumps too much. I feel like this particular area of my life is consuming me. I feel like I'm not finding release. I feel like I'm not finding my identity in Christ. Or maybe you're here and um, you're not sure what your afterlife looks like. You don't know what life after this life has for you. In both instances, I can offer you hope. First, if you are without knowledge of what your eternal life will look like, Christ made that perfectly clear when He died on the cross. He said, <clears throat> um, the, the Bible tells us that for God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing Christ and in turn knowing the Father. When Christ died on the cross, He took our sin so that we could have intimate knowledge and relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's what we trust in. As a teenage boy, I trusted in that. I said, I, I know, I mean, it doesn't take much to look at a teenage boy and realize that they are a screw-up. I said, I look, honestly, look at myself, God, I realize that I am not going to make, I can't even make my mom happy, let alone make you happy. I, I need you in my life. And in a very real way, God assured me at that moment that I belonged to Him. I trusted in Christ for forgiveness, and God in turn gave me a relationship with the living God. That's the greatest hope of all. But if you're a Christian here today and you feel like you've just been defeated and that there's, there's stuff that just keeps consuming you, I want you to dwell on the promised glory of eternity. The stuff that causes depression, the things that cause you to doubt yourself, the sin that seems to afflict you and run you down, all those things go away. It may be in five years or it may be in 55 years. I don't know. But Christ's glory and the promise of us inheriting that same glory should bring us hope. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Depression has been defeated. Viruses have been defeated. Death has been defeated. And in Christ we have glory. Dwell on that today. All right, church? Let's pray.